So we have uh, 24 chapters to get through today. So I hope you packed a lunch, maybe brought your pajamas. I don't know if you can see these, but these were in a pile on the table in the, in the back room. These are these little uh, door stoppers, right? And when you, when you pull them, when they're on a door, they make this loud sound. So I referenced these last week because one of them went off in one of the kids' rooms, and it's, it's really distracting, at least for me. And then, I realized, and then I went off on it, you know, for a little while. And then I realized later that there were probably a lot of people who had no idea what I was talking about. I probably sounded crazy. So anyway, I, I was talking about something. So whoever took these off the doors, these terrible, pointless, worthless... <laughs> right. Enough's enough. So at the point we are in the book of Job, there are four men who are sitting around a fire, and their names are Job and Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. They are friends, and one of them, Job, has had his life turned upside down. Weeks ago, uh, he had everything that a man could want. He had a beautiful wife. He had adored children. He had plenty of money to take care of his family in the bank. He had his health. Most importantly, he had a relationship with God. He was at peace with God. And now as he sits at the fire, he has lost all of that. He's lost his wife, at least temporarily. He's lost her support. He's lost his kids. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his health. He feels like he's lost his God. So he is is filled to the brim with despair. It is worse than he ever thought that it could get. And then at the end of chapter 2, we're told that three friends have come from far away to be with him, to do what friends should do. They just sat with him. I'm sure they cried with him. I'm sure that they made sure that he was eating enough and made sure that he was drinking enough. They they took care of him. Maybe they shouldered some responsibilities for him. And for a week... They didn't say a single word. They just sat with him. I mean, what could you possibly say to someone who was suffering like Job was? Job was actually the first one to speak up. 
And we read his words in chapter 3. After seven days, the, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual suffering became unbearable for Job. And chapter 3 bubbles out. It's his doubt, it's his despair coming out. It is his lament. And his words were pretty shocking. The way he begins and the gist of all that he says is that he wished he was dead. He wished he was never born or that now God would just get on with it and kill him. He doesn't understand the purpose of his life. He doesn't understand any meaning in his life. And so... Job's friends, they listen to Job, they listen to his lament, and then after that they could no longer bite their tongue. They'd been silent for a week, but after hearing those words come out of Job's mouth, they couldn't keep silent anymore, and they begin to talk. And frankly, I don't blame them. I think if I were in their situation and I was hearing someone I cared about say the things that Job was saying, I would have probably felt compelled to speak up. I'm not sure I would have been quiet for seven days. But at that point, hearing what Job said, a friend wishing that he was dead, I'm sure I would have felt compelled to speak. So what we're going to do this morning is to examine the words of Job's Friends, which we find in chapters 4 through 27. And then next week, we're going to examine Job's responses in the same chapters. And what we'll find in these chapters, chapters 4 through 27, is three escalating rounds of speeches. That is how this is all recorded for us. Chapters 4 through 27... It is three rounds of escalating speeches between Job and his friends. And it goes like this. Job lets out, lets out his lament in chapter 3. And then Eliphaz speaks. And then Job responds. And then Bildad speaks. And then Job responds. And then Zophar speaks. And then Job concludes that first round. In chapters 12 through 14. And then you have round two of the speeches. And Eliphaz speaks and then Job responds. And then Bildad and then Job responds. And then Zophar and then Job responds. And that concludes round two. And then you have round three where they have way escalated. And Eliphaz speaks and Job responds Bildad sputters out only six verses, and then Job responds. Then Zophar doesn't even have anything else to say, and Job speaks for quite a while. So that's the outline of chapters 4 through 27, and this morning, the words of the friends will be our focus. And then next week, we'll go back and we'll look at Job's responses. And so there's a goal this morning. There's a goal that I have. It's a goal that you should have when you're reading the book of Job. It's obviously one of the reasons the book of Job is in the Bible. I hope that you will be helped 
as you suffer and or sit with those who are suffering. We've already covered that we're all going to suffer to some degree in this life. You you can't get through this life unscathed. And we're all going to sit with people who are suffering. And I'm willing to bet that the majority of you right now are either suffering or you're sitting with people who are suffering. You're, You're living with people. You're relating to people. You're loving and leading people who are suffering. So, in light of that, we tune into the book of Job and say, help us, God. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, as we read your word today, we're thankful. We're thankful that you have revealed so much to us and given us so much. We ask that you would enlighten our minds today that you would ignite our hearts and that you would press our wills to follow, to love, to serve you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's get to know these friends. The title of this sermon is Miserable Comforters. And the title of this sermon is Miserable Comforters because that is what Job actually called these men in chapter 16, verse 2, after he'd heard about four speeches from them. He said in 16, verse 2, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. But quickly, in defense of Job's friends... What if Job is overreacting when he says that? What if he's overreacting when he calls them miserable comforters? Actually, these are good men. I believe that. They are good men. They care about Job. They've already demonstrated that. It's why they're there. They've come from far off. They care about Job. And it's going to become clear they do know God. These men know God. In fact... They have some very good theology that's going to come out. They will affirm God's holiness. They will affirm God's sovereignty. They will affirm God's goodness. So maybe Job is overreacting when he says, you guys are a bunch of miserable comforters. I think some of us have been in the shoes of these friends. And we've discovered that sometimes when, when you are with a person who is depressed, it is almost impossible to say the right thing. It can be so difficult when someone is deep in despair to actually say the right thing. And everything you say comes across as wrong. The author Sue Atkinson, she writes this. You cook their favorite meal, you tidy the kitchen while they are out, you put fresh flowers in the hall, you even suggest that they have a new coat. All are wrong. You are supposed to realize that their present loss of appetite means that the sight of their favorite meal would reduce them to tears. 
Tidying the kitchen was actually a way of saying to them that you dislike the way they leave the kitchen in chaos. Putting fresh flowers in the hall was wrong because they will die and they look so much prettier outside. And as for suggesting a new coat, that was a threat because you are probably saying that they should at least try to do something about their disheveled appearance, however low they feel. It could be hard to say the right thing. You may say good things and they're misconstrued. Job said in 13.5 to his friends, Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Go back to what you did those first seven days, he says, please. And in 16.3, Shall windy words have an end? And in 19.2, he asked them, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? So at least according to Job, the three friends stopped being helpful as soon as they opened their mouths. You started getting hurtful, Job is saying, and not helpful as soon as you opened mouths. In 1921, he ends up begging them to stop their onslaught of hurtful words. He says this, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. And then in chapter 6, verse 15, he compares them to a creek that has been flooded and is destroying everything on its banks. So who's right? Is Job right when he calls them miserable comforters or are his friends right when they call him things like impatient in 4-5 and evil in 22-5? Is he overreacting? He's not. Job is right. These three friends are in fact miserable comforters. And My basis for agreeing with Job is the words of God Himself. It's the words of God Himself. In chapter 42, verse 7, God will say this, My anger burns against you, Eliphaz, and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So there we go. So that is my basis for saying that Job is right when he is critical of the counsel of his friends. They do not do a good job. For those of you who are sitting with those who are suffering, you do not want to follow the example of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They are in the Bible partly as a negative example. You want to know what not to do? You want to know what not to say? Read chapters 4 through 27 and pay close attention to what these men do and what they say. So let's get to know them. Let's look at all three of them. What's so miserable about these comforters? Let's start with Eliphaz. Eliphaz gives three speeches, right? Round 1, 2, and 3, and 4, and 5, and then in 15, and then in 22. He is probably the oldest of the four, which is why he speaks first. 
We know from chapter 15, 9 through 10 that he has gray hair. Not that that's a big deal. I have some gray hair. And my wife likes it. Kind of a big week for me. I actually turned 40 this week. Yeah, I turned 40. It was, I had a, dis- oh, this will just be real quick. I had a disturbing experience this week because I was filling out something with one of my kids. I think it was online. And, and they have this, the, the, this terrible thing that they do on some of these forms where you check boxes for age ranges. Okay? So... I'm sitting there with my son, and one of the boxes is 25 to 39. So I'm checking that box, because I'm, as of today, I am 39. But the thought, you know, I I look ahead, because I'm thinking in about four days, I got to check the next box. And the next box was 40 to 64. What the... (laughs) So it went from like 14 years to like 70 years in the next box. Not that I don't want to be grouped with those of you who are in that range, right? <laughs> That's not what I'm saying, but that just seemed like an awfully big jump. I just wasn't, I wasn't ready to be, uh, you know, grouped in with you yet. <laughs> so... Anyway, so Eliphaz, he speaks first. He's, he's got gray hair. He's older than Job's dad. So he is older. He is the philosopher among these men. We'll see that. He appeals to logic and reason often. And one more thing. According to chapter 4, verse 15, Eliphaz claims that the things that he's going to share with Job came to him in a vision from God. Which is interesting because later God will say, I'm angry with you because you said you spoke wrongly of me. So he did not get these things in a vision from God. It's difficult when people say things like that. God told me to say this. So to argue with them, you're arguing with God. But be careful. False visions obviously are not a new thing. Uh, They are rarely true. And often it is a tactic that people use to just keep you from arguing with them. So what does the Word of God say? That's always the important question. That is the vision that we can, that is the revelation that we can be clear on and objective with. So Eliphaz claims that what I've got here is a vision from God. He's much older than Job, so what he's going to say is going to come with some weight. What does he say? He starts off insensitive with Job in 4, 5, and 6. But now suffering has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? And then in the very next verses in chapter 4, Eliphaz lets his worldview out of the bag. Here is the theological principle through which Eliphaz interprets Job's suffering. Here it is. It's in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4. Who that was innocent ever perished... 
or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So there's Eliphaz's principle. It's verse 8. Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And he's going to build everything that he says on that theological principle. And in fact, his friends are going to build everything they say on that theological principle. People reap what they sow. So, Job, you are reaping trouble because you have sowed trouble. You're suffering because of some unconfessed sin. So it's very black and white for Eliphaz. It's very black and white. It is very simple and straightforward. Job, you're reaping what you've sown. You're getting what you had coming to you. You are getting what you deserve. So what's the counsel from Eliphaz? What should Job do? 5.8, as for me, Eliphaz says, I would seek God. I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. So you see his message. Just seek God, Job. Turn from your sin, Job, and everything will be okay again. Confess your sin. You seem like a righteous guy, but obviously... There's something you're hiding. And God has found you out. And that is why you are suffering. You're reaping what you've sown. So get right with God and everything will be back to normal. Which is basically what he says in 5, 24 through 27. If he gets right with God, then you shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true, Job. Hear and know it is for your good. That's pretty insensitive. Repent, Job, and God will give you a new tent, a new home. He'll give you new kids. You'll get your health back. And you'll live to a ripe old age. That is not helpful. Job does not want a new house. Job does not want new kids. And were they listening? He sure does not want to live to a ripe old age. He wants to die now. He wishes he was dead. So that's Eliphaz. There are two other friends. And we'll spend less time on them because they really don't say anything new. They, they sit on the shoulders of Eliphaz. They build on his foundation. So Bildad. He gives three speeches in chapter 8, 18, and then... He sort of sputters out with just six verses in chapter 25. Bildad sounds like Eliphaz. He's just more harsh. That's what happens. These guys get more and more harsh. So he says the same kinds of things, but he says them with 
less sensitivity than Eliphaz. He is probably the academic in the group. He is probably the scholar of the group. And he picks up on the same, I want you to hear it, he picks up on the same reap and sow principle just like Eliphaz. He stands on this principle of very simple, black and white justice. Everything is explainable in these terms. Accept it, Job. Same thing. Chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hopeless, the hope of the godless shall perish. So what's he saying? You're godless, Job. That's why you're withering here. It's so obvious. You're godless, Job. You've forgotten God. That's why you're suffering. And then Bildad takes it a step further. He is brutal. And he applies this reap and sow principle to the children of Job. He said in 8, 3, and 4, Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against Him, He has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Thanks, Bill, Dad. What a harsh, insensitive thing to say. You see how it's black and white for these guys. These very simple views of everything. Just formulaic. Just A plus B equals C. This is simple. The principle is you reap what you sow. And you're sowing all this suffering. Your children died because they had unconfessed sin. Because you now have unconfessed sin. So, get up, pull yourself up, and turn to God. Get Righteous Job, and that's his same admonition in 8, 6, and 7. If you are pure and upright, surely then God will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And through, though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. All right, it's the same thing over and over again. So finally, we've got Zophar. Zophar is a piece of work. Zophar is the youngest and the harshest, which, friends, is often the case. Whatever life stage we're in, there are different temptations. And you see this in Scripture, and you see it in your own life. We've seen what the temptations for Eliphaz are, as the, the oldest one in the group. And we see this man, Zophar who is the youngest, therefore he knows everything. I remember feeling like this. I might mean, still feel like that because I'm very young. In his commentary, in his commentary on the book of Job, listen to what David Atkinson has to say about Zophar. I thought this was good. Zophar is high on the list of those without whom we could happily live if we never saw them again. An insolent intellectual prig. He was one of those tiresome people, probably just out of college, who knows everything. As Robert Gordas says of him, he never lets facts interfere with his theories. 
Dang, that's harsh. So here he is. Let's see, is this warranted? Listen to him in chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Listen to what he says to Job. And don't forget what we know to be true about Job. We know who Job is. We know what he's made of. Listen to what Zophar assumes. Chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. For Job, you say, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes, but oh. That God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then, Job, that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Zophar claims to speak for God. And tells Job that his suffering is actually less than what he deserves. So these are his friends. These are his friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Those quotes I just gave you, those were just from their first rounds of speeches. You can read for yourself. They really don't say anything different in their second and third speeches. These guys are, they're broken records. They say the same thing over and over and over again. Blah, blah, blah. John Calvin said of them, they have one song to sing and they sing it to death. Over and over again. Not only do they keep singing the same song, they sing it badly. In other words, as their speeches progress, their tone gets nastier. Their tone gets harsher. Their tone gets uglier. In fact, Eliphaz gets so exasperated with Job, and he's so convinced that Job is hiding something, that in Eliphaz's last speech in chapter 22, he just makes up a list of Job's sins. He says, is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. But what do we know about those conclusions that Eliphaz has made? They're wrong. He's wrong. Job, according to God, is the most righteous man on earth. In fact, his suffering is not due to his wickedness. Think about it. His suffering is due to his righteousness. He wouldn't be suffering like this if he wasn't so good and making himself a target for Satan and what God wants to prove through him. So these friends are absolutely wrong. Job is righteous. Unknowingly, these three men are actually carrying on the accusation of the devil in chapters 1 and 2. 
that Job is not really as righteous as it seems. They're out to prove the same thing. So all that to say, they are miserable comforters. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to say that these three friends are miserable comforters in at least two ways. They are miserable comforters in at least two ways. Their counseling is bad, and their counsel is bad. So the way they say what they say is bad, and what they say is bad. So number one, they are miserable comforters in that their counseling is bad. They have bad form. These guys have zero counseling skills. Zero counseling skills. They talk way too much. They repeat themselves. They lack sympathy. They make false assumptions and draw wrong conclusions. You could summarize a lot of that by saying they do not listen to Job. They don't listen to him. Basically, the only question they ask him is, who do you think you are? You ever ask somebody that question? You don't mean that question. You're saying something. Just who do you think you are? That's really the only question they ask. It's not a question. They don't listen to Job. They don't hear what he's saying. What is he saying over and over again? What is he saying? Guys, I'm telling you. I'm not hiding something. I'm not hiding something. I'm not saying I'm innocent of all sin, but I haven't done anything in secret that is unconfessed, that is unrepented. I I am. I am blameless. I am upright. I am righteous. That, That doesn't explain why I'm suffering this way. You guys are wrong. And they do not listen. They just keep beating the same drum, singing the same song, a broken record going round and round, saying it over and over and over again. They don't listen to Job. Friends, don't follow their example with those that you love, with those that you lead, with those that you will counsel. Basically, all of you at some point or another, right, are going to have people that you are leading. You're going to have people that you're counseling. They're going to be friends. They're going to be people in your church. They're going to be your children. They're going to be your grandchildren. Listen to them. Listen to them. Let them talk. Don't cut them off. Learn how to ask questions. Proverbs says that man's heart is deep waters and the wise man will draw it out. Was Job's communication perfect? No. Job crosses a ton of lines, and we'll see those next week. He says some things that he shouldn't say. 
but his friends needed to let him talk. They needed to let him get everything out on the table. If he's feeling it, let's get it out. I need to know what you're working with. They don't do any of that. They just cut him off. You shouldn't be talking like that. You're wrong. Pull yourself up. Pull yourself together. Stop it. Repent. And you'll get new kids. That's not good counseling. God's going to be the ultimate counselor with Job. He lets Job get it all out. So their counseling is bad. That's number one. But their counsel is bad. So the way they deal with Job is not good. But what they say to Job, remember, that's the problem that God has with them. That's the big problem God has with them. Let me read you again. Chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For why? You have not spoken of me what is right. That's God's beef with them. So their counsel was bad. Their words were bad. So what did they say? I don't want to say what they said. I don't want to offer the same counsel. So we read a lot of their words. You remember? They really said the same thing over and over again. What is the theological principle through which they are interpreting Job's suffering? You remember? Job is suffering immensely, right? And he's asking God, he's crying out to God what all people cry out to God when they suffer. Why? Everybody, unconditionally. When we suffer, we turn our face to God and say, why? We, we cry out for an explanation, We cry out for understanding. And so Job, he does it in chapter 3, and he keeps doing that for the entire book. He's just looking up to heaven and saying, I don't understand. Why is this happening to me? So, what was the answer of the friends? The answer of the friends was, Job, you are reaping what you've sown. That's what they say over and over again. So, this gets interesting. This gets interesting. Because they are partly right. You reap what you sow. Remember, these men know God. They know a fair amount of truth. And there is truth in what these men have to say. Maybe those of you who have read Job a few times, you've, you've been reading these men sometimes and, and saying, Amen. Amen. They affirm God's sovereignty. 
They don't try to comfort Job by limiting God's control. Oh, God didn't know this was going to happen, or God's not in control of this, or God's trying to figure out how to, like a lot of people will counsel those who are suffering today. No, they affirm God's sovereignty. They have many true things that they say to Job. And it is true. We reap what we sow. This is throughout Scripture. You teach your children this. You've learned this. This is the universe God has made. Actions have consequences. That's a true statement. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So these three friends are standing on a biblical truth. So I want you to see that. That's not where this goes wrong. But here's the problem. It is not enough to know the truth. The truth must be applied rightly. It is not enough just to know truth. It must be applied rightly. For those of you who know the truth, I'm so glad you know the truth. For those of you that have sound doctrine, that have sound theology, I'm so glad you have sound doctrine. I'm so glad you have sound theology. But that doctrine and that theology is for something. It needs to be applied first and foremost to yourself. It needs to be applied and worked out in your life. All theology is practical. So it's not just knowing good theology. It's not just knowing what the truth is. There's another task that is not simple. And it is not black and white, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. This takes a lot of prayer. This takes a lot of work. It needs to be applied rightly. This is what Proverbs 26, 9 means when it says, Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. It's not enough to have a proverb. You've got to know how to use it. It's not enough to have wisdom. Solomon, you've got to know how to use it. They have truth. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. But they misapply the truth. Right? It's true. People will reap what they sow, ultimately. If you run from God, it will not go well for you. If you run to God, it will go well for you. Obedience will ultimately lead to blessing. Disobedience will ultimately lead to cursing. But listen, that principle does not account for all the suffering in the world. 
It's not that simple. The reap-sow principle is good. It's biblical. It should be a warning to the wicked. And it should be an encouragement to the righteous. But it's not like the big principle in the Bible through which you're supposed to interpret all of life. And that's what these men are doing. Sin equals suffering. Righteousness equals blessing. So if it's going well with you, God must be pleased. And if it's not going well with you, God must not be pleased. That is not how it works. Suffering and prosperity are not distributed in proportion to the good and evil people do. That was the disciples' thing with the man who was born blind in John chapter 9. And Jesus had to straighten him out. He's born blind. He's suffering. So what is it? Is it parents that sinned really bad or was it him that sinned really bad? Because suffering, sin equals suffering. So let's put that in reverse. So if you're suffering, it equals you sinned. This is also the foundation of prosperity teaching. Same simple black and white formula. Material prosperity is a sign of righteousness. And material poverty is a sign of wickedness. If you follow Christ with all your heart, you won't have trouble. So if you have trouble, it is your unbelief. Or it is your lack of faith that accounts for your suffering. What a terrible and unbiblical thing to say. But it's exactly what these men are telling Job. So that's one problem with their counsel. They have truth, but they misapply the truth. So friends... Get truth, and then learn how to apply that truth. But secondly, secondly, the second error they make in their counseling, in their words, that we'll see later, God addresses and deals with rightly, But here's what these friends do. And I wonder if you've done this. I wonder if you do this with yourself or with others. The second error they make in their counsel is that they are trying to explain Job's suffering. Remember that question we always ask? When we're suffering, we ask, why? It's the question that Job asks over and over again. Why is this happening? Why now? Why to this degree? You're going to ask it, and you're going to be sitting with people who are asking that question. What do you say? Well, what did Job's friends do? They tried to explain his suffering. Suffering is for enduring, not explaining. What do you do with suffering? Well, you endure suffering. But don't try to explain suffering. 
The problem with these counselors is they cannot handle mystery. They have to answer the why question. Have you felt that? They have to answer the why question. They can't resist when they hear Job saying why. They get their truth. They got a principle. That must be the answer. And so they, what do they do? They misapply it. But that's not the problem. Job's situation does not require answers. It requires faith. When you're suffering, what you don't need is answers to why you are suffering. You need to cling to Christ. You need faith. What your friends need when they're suffering is not, I know they want answers. I want the answers. They cry out for the answers. I cry out for those answers. It is a natural thing to do. You will cry out for answers. But don't assume that you have them. Answers are not what we need. We need faith. God is good. He is sovereign. He knows what is best for His glory and for our good. And we do not. From our vantage point, from my vantage point, it looks like there's people all over the place reaping what they have not sown. Or not reaping what they've sown. It's a big problem with the psalmist. They're just looking everywhere going, hello. I hear this reap so principle, but that guy deserves this and it's not coming to him. And this guy doesn't deserve that and it's coming to him, right? It's, It's why, why, why? God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Faith in the living God cannot be replaced with some twisted logic. His friends want it black and white. I want it black and white. They want God to be predictable. I want God to be predictable. I want to know this equals that and this equals that. That's the appeal of religion. That's the appeal of moralism. That's the appeal. Hey, if I do A, B, and C, I'm going to get D no matter what. Blaise Pascal said, Reason's last step is the recognition that there are infinite number of things which are beyond it. It is merely feeble if it does not go as far as to realize that. If natural things are beyond it, what are we to say about supernatural things? Suffering is for enduring, not explaining. There is so much we don't know. Isn't the book of Job teaching us that? There is so much Job didn't know. We're like Job when we suffer. We're on the pages of the story. We're not reading the pages of the story. We're there in the book, your life. You don't know what is going on in heaven right now as it relates to your present circumstances. 
You don't know what in detail God is doing to work his glory and your good. You know he's doing that, but you don't know the details of it. You don't know how this fits with that and how this will go this way and how this will turn out that way and how the puzzle pieces will link in the end. You don't know that, the detail to that extent. But you know he's working for your glory. You know he's working for your good. And so we can't speculate. And that's what his friends do. They can't live faithfully in that mystery. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story of a woman that came to him for counsel. And she'd received a lot of counseling from people like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Just one truth after another. Well, there's this, and there's this, and there's this. So, I don't know. Stop being depressed. What's the matter with you? God is good. You're so blessed. And you're depressed? What's the matter with you? Get out of your funk. Stop. It's not that simple. So here's what he... Here's what he said. I'm going to quote him. The advice of her friends did not help her because it never helps such people to tell them to pull themselves together and arouse themselves. That is just what they cannot do. The way to help such a person, the way in which this particular person to whom I am referring was helped, is to say, ah, yes. You know, There are periods like that in the lives of the saints. Sometimes God, for his inscrutable reasons, withholds his face from us. She looked at me in amazement, saying, is that true? Of course it is true, I replied. And I proceeded to give her many examples and illustrations of it. Probably people like David and William Cowper and Charles Spurgeon and maybe others who have suffered and been in despair, sometimes to those looking in for no good reason. So, in conclusion... What should these friends have said to Job? What should they have said to him? They said, we reap what we sow. That's why it's going this way for you, Job. It's simple. Turn. When Job looked up to heaven and said, why? And when he looked to his friends and said, why is this happening to me? They should have said something more like, I don't know. I wish I had the answers. All of them. I wish we could somehow go forward in time. And you could... See how this is all going to work out for your good. But I just don't have those details. I just don't have those specifics. But I know this. I know this. 
God loves you. And he's going to be glorified in this. And it's going to work together for your good. And remember that God's ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So, of course, there are going to be things that we cannot explain, that we cannot understand. And often the details of our suffering will be one of those things. And so we encourage someone to endure and to be faithful. We're patient with them and we're sympathetic with them and we listen to them. We do the things that Job's friends did not do and we don't say the things that they said. But we walk with people as they wrestle with God. We walk with them in their faith. We continue to point them to Christ and encourage them. And remind them of the truth that we do know and the truth that we do have. It's a great lesson that we have as we watch and listen to these friends of Job. Finally, something interesting, I thought. This principle of we reap what we sow that Job's friends wanted to apply so rigidly. We reap what we sow. Oh, for the Christian, it's important for us to remember that Christ reaped what we sowed. It doesn't work to press this to the end. We reap what we sow and that's it. Well, as a Christian, I'm not reaping what I've sown. God is just. That is true, Job's friends. God is also merciful. There's more to the story. God is also gracious. Not everybody gets what they deserve. Christ reaped what I sowed. Christ got what I deserved. We reap what Christ sowed. We get, as Christians, what Christ deserves. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel. That it's true, we will reap what we sow. It's true, God is a just God and He will not let sin go unpunished. But there is a way for the guilty to be saved. And that is by faith in Christ who was punished on their behalf. So that I don't have to reap what I've sown. This is the good news. At the end of every service we say, Something like this, for those of you who are here and you are not in Christ, turn to him and be saved. And that's, this is what we're talking about. Turn to him and be saved. It means that ultimately, those of you who are running from God, who are not loving him, 
who are not serving him, who are not submitting to him, who are not enjoying him, ultimately, you're going to reap what you've sown. And what disobedience to God sows is eternal punishment. It's that bad. It's that bad. But there is a way. Because while God is just, he's not just just. He is also a merciful God. The foundation, I'm sure, for his patience with Job. And so God extends mercy to us. So when we say turn to Christ and be saved, what we mean is turn away from sin, turn away from a life that revolves around you, turn away from doing what you want, turn away from loving yourself more than anybody else, and turn to loving God, and turn to following God, and turn to serving Him. Take hold of Him. Acknowledge that you're a sinner, And there's nothing that you can do to make yourself right before God. But you can stop relying on your own goodness and take hold of Christ's goodness. And say, thank you for living a perfect life in my place. Thank you for dying a terrible death in my place. Thank you for living a life that could count as mine and dying a death that could count as mine and love him and devote yourself to him and serve him. Turn to Christ even now, even today, and be saved. If that's something you haven't done and you want to do today, if that's something you have questions about, I'll be here in the front at the end of service and I'll wait for you and I'd be happy to talk with you Be happy to listen, but don't let another day go by if this is something you need to do. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you for the example that we have in the book of Job, God. This life is a life that is full of suffering and pain at times, and we want to know what you Expect from us in those times and how we can help others. So would you continue to teach us, God, how we can bring you glory and honor in all that we do. And God, if there are people here today who are hearing your word and who are thinking differently now and believing differently now, God, we ask that you would continue your work in them to completion. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.